0: Thank you. Please give money to the library. Um, I was joking with the librarians that I was tempted to change my sermon to a Turner Burn type message if you didn't give to the library, but I, but that doesn't align with my theology, and it shouldn't align with yours. (laughs) But please give to the library. So I'm going to invite you, if you are able to stand, for the reading of God's Word. These are the words of Jesus, so let's pay attention. What I love about being Pentecostal is we use our bodies. I like standing if we're able to stand. So listen with me. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Uh Uh-oh. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Someone needs to hear this. Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying at a single hour of your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all of these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But strive first for what? The kingdom of God. And what? What? His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow brings worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. You may be seated. There's this age-old legend about a fella by the name of Schmeagel. Schmeagel was born to an upper class aristocratic family. While versions of the story are muddied, some claim that Schmeagel's mother was of a royal line. Schmeagel was the son of a matriarch of the stores. Now, Stores, as you well know, are a close cousin of the hobbits. Schmeagel was a very curious individual with, we assume, endless money and power at his disposal. We could say because of his family line, he had access to anything and everything he wanted. But one day, on his birthday no less, Schmeagel was fishing with his companion, Deagle. Choose a friend whose name rhymes with yours. They were in a little river. Ancient lore tells us that Deagle was suddenly pulled into the river out of the boat, dragged to the bottom, where he discovered the most beautiful, exquisite golden ring you've ever seen. Now remember, it was Schmeagel's birthday, the the man who was used to getting everything he wanted, so he demanded that Deagle hand over the ring. Deagle, of course, refused, so Schmeagel, the storish man who gets whatever he wants, kills Deagle and takes the ring as his own. As some of you may have guessed, Schmeagel would later be known as Gollum, Gollum. Tolkien's paranoid character, consumed by greed and selfishness, Gollum, he would eventually alienate everyone in his life, such that all that mattered to him was possession of this single, solitary ring. Does anyone know this story? Which of the pictures do you think he used for his Tinder profile? You gotta swipe left. Listen for a second. Greed cannot be possessed by anyone. Greed always possesses you. Hear me. We must only be possessed by one, God Almighty, because when other things start to possess our hearts, our very humanity begins to erode. St. Augustine says this in his City of God, When the miser prefers his gold to justice, it is through no fault of the gold, but of the man. And so with every created thing, for though it be good, it may be loved with an evil as well as with a good love. Augustine argues that much like Golem, you can love something or someone with an evil love. Isn't that interesting? Ancient people believed that whatever you fixate your attention on, you become obsessed with, and even more, you become like. The places you inhabit also inhabit you. The thoughts you're forming also form you. Or so the ancient logic goes. One of my favorite thinkers from antiquity, Plutarch, tells a very funny story about a group of women who encountered... Puppies. Do you know the type? Women obsessed with puppies. In utter disbelief, Plutarch comments how strange it is that these women love puppies so much. <laughs> he then sets forth what is probably the world's first and last anti-puppy tirade. He didn't like puppies. He argues that by continuing to focus your attention on the puppies too much... You're actually developing affection for a less important thing. Now, to be clear, I strongly disagree with Plutarch here, so don't don't throw stones. Because some of us, when we go into a pet store, how many have done this? You see a fluffy little animal. The longer you stay in the store, the more likely you are to leave with the animal. So there's a problem, right? How do we break this magnetic draw to these fluffy, cute little creatures? Why would we want to do this? Here's Plutarch's solution. Again, this is ancient logic. In the exercise of his or her mind, every person, if she pleases, has the natural power to turn himself away in every case and to change without the least difficulty to the object upon which he or herself determines. In other words, according to this guy, you will become obsessed with whatever you focus your attention on. You just have to turn your head. Look at your neighbor and say, you have my attention. Now look away and say, no, you don't. (laughs) You might be focused on puppies. Well, stop looking at them. Stop Googling puppy pictures. Perhaps like Schmeagel, you're obsessed with the material possession, that Gucci handbag, that new pair of Yeezys. In today's scriptural passage, Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount, now turning our attention to our earthly things. Don't touch my stuff, Jesus. In this section of Jesus' speech, he's making it infinitely clear what he thinks of our stuff. Many historians believe that Jesus was an itinerant philosopher who didn't own much stuff at all. Not a dime to his name. In fact, many of the negative sayings of Jesus are directed toward people with a lot of stuff. And we think the people most attracted to Jesus' message were people with little, if any, stuff. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Do you know the saying? We're hearing the words of a traveling Jewish preacher who is experiencing homelessness. Those who decided to follow him left their family and their friends to do so. Can you just imagine with me how that conversation went between Peter and Mrs. Peter? What are you doing? Where are you going? How much does it pay? Who is this guy? Peter replies, I, he's the Messiah. I, I don't know. I can't ask. It'd be rude. I don't know. It paid nothing. It paid so little, in fact, they were caught eating heads of grain on the Sabbath. They couldn't even buy lunches for the team. These are the contexts of our word. A poor Jewish man to a poor rural community of listeners. We're not in a busy city, Wall Street, even Minneapolis. We're in a poor rural neighborhood. And Jesus is speaking to a group of people who desperately need a payday people for whom a paycheck would make a massive difference in their lives. This is why he tells them not to worry about clothing. It's not because they're on Etsy and Pinterest all day. It's because they don't have two pairs of shoes. These are the people he's talking to. That's the context. He then has the nerve and the audacity to tell people on the fringe of non-existence not to worry. Just imagine the gall. When I tell you in this room not to worry, many of us, most of us, have a backup plan, someone we can lean on or go to their house to take us in. This wasn't the case for Jesus' original audience. In the ancient world, a famine, an earthquake, a plague, a change in weather pattern, even a bad meal or a loose tooth could mean the end of your life. Did you know in... uh, Ancient Roman controlled Palestine, the average life expectancy was 20 to 30 years old. So many in this room would have five to 10 years left. Some would have defied the odds. Jesus says this, do not uh, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This context isn't suburban America, it's more like war-torn Ukraine. That's where we are. That's the setup. That brings me to my first point. In order to take seriously the words of Jesus, we must properly order the things we love. Time is short. Get organized. Time is short. Get organized. To borrow from St. Augustine again, he says this, a human being lives in justice and sanctity if he values things soundly. And he does that if his life is a well-ordered love. So that he neither loves what she ought to, nor she fails to love what she should. She does not love more an object deserving lesser love. We know this intuitively, by the way. We make lists of things that we love all the time, often without even knowing it. Right? We love God the most. We love our family. We love our spouse, our boyfriend, our girlfriend. We love our children. And we love some things less. At least we claim to, our PS5, our Louis Vuitton. We order our loves all the time. Here's the catch. How do you verify your love? How do we check the receipts? Have you ever been in a relationship and your partner asks you to please put away your phone? Ever been there? Your partner isn't issuing you an ultimatum. They're asking you to demonstrate with your attention the thing you claim to care so much about. Show me the receipts. The ancient logic holds true. What we give our attention to, we will become most infatuated with and we will become more like. We all love something or someone because we're so willing to give our attention away so freely. This is why Jesus says that moth and rust destroy our treasures on earth. These are lesser objects not worthy of our affection. People will steal your stuff. Floods will damage your houses, but there are treasures that last forever. Pay attention to those. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look at your neighbor and say, You're a treasure. So that's my first point. Order your love, clean it up. Time is short, get organized. Not theoretically, not just on paper, but put your money where your mouth is and show me the receipts. The Sermon on the Mount, as Christy Kerr so beautifully demonstrated for us in her message yesterday, is all about people who claim to know God but are acting in ways contrary to those claims. So in Matthew 5, we have people that claim to love their neighbor but are suing them in court the next day. We have people who claim to love their spouses but are letting their eyes wander. We have people even casting out demons who will spend eternity separated from God. They make big claims, but they have no receipts. The medicinal prescription of Jesus to cure this hypocrisy run rampant is organized love. The Sermon on the Mount is about properly ordering your love life. God neighbor, stranger. That's it. Notice I left out stuff. God, neighbor, stranger. Less time for stuff, more time for people. This brings me to my second point. There are some things we have to stop ourselves from loving. It's what Augustine means when he says loving things with an evil kind of love. No one can serve two masters, for an enslaved person will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So Jesus is chiefly talking about money here. In his time and place, wealth and the security that it promises cannot evacuate God and God's provision. The same is true for us. I think we can extend these words of Jesus not only to money, but to other loves in our lives as well. Permission to be vulnerable. I love raw cookie dough. Um, I could eat a pouch of it, pass out, eat another pouch of it. There's this place in New York that serves edible raw cookie dough. I didn't know the stuff I had been consuming wasn't edible. (laughs) There's nowhere closer to the pearly gates for me. So another example is how many love to stay mad. It can be really pleasurable to hold on to resentment. Revenge or hatred for a moment can feel satisfying, and we may want to indulge these feelings for as long as possible. Hate has no place in a properly ordered love. Hate and love cannot both be your master. You have to choose one. You have to give one your attention, not the other. You have to turn your head. Now, this, of course, is quite different from those of us who have experienced systemic or repeated harm. Here I'm talking about racism, sexism, ableism, all the isms. Hating and despising someone on your floor for whatever reason. We cannot serve two masters. According to Jesus, if you harbor hate toward another person, you cannot properly love. Like a rock lodged into a drain pipe, hate stops the flow of love. Greed operates the same way. Greed is like a weed in your garden the garden of your hearts, that's choking out every plant from flourishing. To love properly, we have to cut some things out. We have to love some things less, even love some things not at all. So here's my third point. If you properly organize your love, if you demonstrate that love with your actions, if you cut some things out that you secretly love, then and only then you'll learn this. God is most worthy of your attention. Does anyone else get these weekly iPhone reminders that tell you how long you've been on your phone? Man, I hate those. Right? You've been on your phone for 700 hours this week. (laughs) Your screen time has gone up 400%. (laughs) It's like, how do I turn this off? God is most worthy of your attention. The scripture says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. When you're worried, what do you pick up first? Your phone? Or do you talk to God? Jesus is preaching here on a mountain and referencing the environment around him, the birds chirping in the air, the lilies that canvas the valley, the green grass of the field check this out. Most of creation does not worry the way you and I worry. Birds don't wake up one day panicking because the worms aren't there. The green grass isn't in a frenzy because the rain didn't fall today. The lilies aren't having weekly committee meetings because they're suddenly dropping in numbers. We learn from the created order that all things grow and grieve in the hands of the Creator. Try as we might, we're not the masters of our own destinies. This is where I think some of the Greek philosophers are dead wrong. God controls the future, not us, not fate. God is worthy of our attention. I'd like to invite the worship team back up as I turn to some closing thoughts. I want to talk about a character in the Bible that really just puzzles me. Since I encountered him at a young age, I've been fascinated with the character of Cain the story of Cain and Abel. I've always wondered about Cain. Why did he get such a bad rap? How come God preferred Abel's gift to his? Anyone else ever identify with Cain? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> What's up with that, God? Cain was doing his best. He was grinding it out. How come you looked away from him? Cain was the first character in the Bible to take life by the horns. You know that? Probably was a three on the Enneagram. (laughs) (laughs) To live out the American dream, so to speak. We're trained to think that the amount of effort we put in will get out of life. And that's what Cain thought. God was unhappy with his gift at the altar, the gift he had worked hard to present, so he decided he was going to do something about it. Cain wanted his life to change. God was unfair to Cain, or so he thought, for arbitrary reasons. So rather than move within the grooves of the created order, Cain woke up one day and thought, I'm going to lift myself above it. I'm going to be God today. In his rage-filled sorrow, Cain kills his brother Abel, and the most sobering words of Genesis follow. Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. That line moves me every time I read it. Cain upsets the created order, and creation itself rats him out. The dirt told God what Cain did. Hear me out, please. Life is full of challenges, but most in this room are infinitely better off than the original audience to, which, to whom Jesus speaks. Most in this room have access to resources that those hearing these words for the first time would never have fathomed of touching or seeing. Yet some of us, like Cain or even Schmigel, have decided with our bounty of resources and our access to many things that we want even more. We want to become the master of our own destinies. Life isn't fair, so we want to do something about it. We want to assert ourselves over and against God and God's created order. We want to try our hand at playing God. It doesn't work that way. To love God, we must learn to give God our complete and undivided attention. That doesn't mean we can't ask questions. It doesn't mean we can't get angry or have deep and moving emotions full of sadness and sorrow. Trusting God is simply looking to the birds of the air or the fish in the streams and realizing that trusting in this infinitely, unimaginably good being is built into the fabric of our DNA as creatures of God. It's what the created order just does. If displaced Christians from Ukraine can do this, if migrating refugees can do this, so can we if you can give God your attention, if you can cut out the things you secretly love, if you can properly organize your love life and then demonstrate it with your actions, then you can live as Jesus commands us to live in this passage. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Give God your complete and undivided attention. Love God, love neighbor, love stranger. Today's message might mean for some of us that God is calling you to love things less. This is what Augustine calls loving with an evil kind of love. Maybe there's some things in your life that you shouldn't be loving at all. Only you know that. Others in here might feel a bit disorganized in your love life. The God of order is here today right now to help you get organized. He created the stars in the sky, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air. He can organize your love life. Maybe there is someone in here who feels like every ounce of their energy has been squeezed out of them and they're empty. Something has drawn their attention away from God and now they feel like they have nothing left to give. Don't be Cain. Don't take the matters into your own hands. Turn your head to God. Give God your attention. We're currently in this season of Lent, which for many Christians is a time of giving things up, building up to the resurrection. Did you know that Lent is all about organizing your love life? You say no to some things so that you can say yes to better things. Let me tell you something better. Give God your complete and undivided attention. Love God. Love neighbor. Love stranger. I'm going to pray in just a moment and then I'm going to invite the worship team to continue with us in a time of praise. And I pray in your response to what I shared today. You would practice giving God your attention and that some of you, only you know what this is, would think about the things you need to love less. And notice I said things, not people, things. What's the stuff that's been dragging you down and drawing you away? Let's pray. Oh God of order, God of the most organized manifold universe, God who put the stars in the right place and put my organs in my body right where they need to be. God of order, we cry out to you. For some of us, we say we feel in disarray. We feel disorganized. We can't pick things up because we don't have enough strength to do so. Bring us order. Help us to organize our love lives. Imagine with me for a moment you're looking at a shelf And on that bookshelf, it's so messy. On the top shelf is an old bowl of cereal. The cereal has got all crusty. There's a coffee cup that's been on there for weeks, starting to get mold. Imagine that God, the God of order, is helping you to clear that shelf off. Take away those things that have been distracting you and drawing your attention away. But don't stop there. The shelf isn't empty. Now the God of the universe is helping you to put the things back on the shelf that need to be there. The best things are right in the middle that you can grab whenever you need them. The things you don't need get put on the very top or the very bottom. We can get those things later. What's on your shelf? We love you, God. We need you, God. Help us to be more like you. Help us to hear these words today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.